Hey, y'all, it's Mandy. Before we talk about this week's episode, I want to say shout out to the patrons. Y'all are the reason I'm still doing this. I could do it alone, but it's so much better to run with people who share your vision, share your values, and see the importance of the work you're doing. So if you're interested in all the premium content, hearing about the questions and answers, or even being a part of our live patron chats, check out my Patreon. It's under at Mandy Capehart, or you can search for Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart and find it that way. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 91, titled Growing Into New Expectations with Danielle Craig. How do you navigate a life of unmet expectations without devolving into constant panic and sorrow? Today's guest is Danielle Craig, a former TV anchor, Emmy award-winning journalist, and the host of the Happiness in Progress podcast. But she's also an incredible mother of three with a beautiful story of navigating the disappointments and unpredictability of life in a compassionate and curious way. Her story today is meant to inspire you to ask more questions of yourself without judgment, whether you are a parent or not. So buckle up for a little bit of kindness you can extend to yourself and your kids and the child within. Hi, everybody. It's Mandy. Welcome back to Restorative Grief. My guest today is one of those beautiful people you just cannot help but smile when you see, which I think is exactly what she's going for. Danielle Craig is a former TV anchor. Emmy award-winning journalist and the host of the Happiness in Progress podcast. But she's also an amazing friend and human. So Danielle, I'm so glad you're here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I think everyone's goal is that people smile when they see them, right? Well, I don't know that. I I don't know. I'd love to say yes and agree with you, but I've got case studies. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe some people have like angry eyebrows. Yeah. Just kidding. I don't know. I mean, I might. (laughs) anyway yes I'm I'm so glad that you're here you have this beautiful presence and I realize that uh grief is not necessarily the topic that you're always running around wanting to talk about but I also think that that's the beautiful part about opening this conversation up is there's opportunity to explain and demonstrate what a life full of joy and grief can look like how that both things can be true And so why don't you just give us a little introduction about why your life is so. I think that in my grand plan, there wasn't going to be a lot of growth in my perfect, like 2.5 perfect kids, perfect family. And so things um, (laughs) are not at all as I expected. And so I think that actually just being an adult, my life has included a lot of grief in letting go of all of the expectations that I had for what I thought my life was going to look like. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate to that deeply. (laughs) And I think most people can in some way, whether they've reckoned with their expectations or not, whether they're in the middle of noticing, um, this isn't quite what I thought I would have ahead of me. Even as we raise our kids, we wrestle. I know I do with the idea of do I squash that or do I promote that perspective? Do I hold them full of hope or do I give them a dose of reality? And at what age is too young to destroy 
hopes and dreams not truly destroy, <laughs> but you, I, that tempering the expectation versus saying, oh, you can have anything you want in the world. You can do anything that you want. There's a beautiful um, perspective behind that. But I also find that it's really hard to hold a straight face and say, everything is going to be okay. When the truth is, I don't, I don't actually know. Yeah. Right. And my husband always teases me that I am one of the millennials that just has it in their head that if they try hard enough at anything, they'll be able to do it. Like I have, <laughs> I've kind of always had the belief, like if I wanted to go be a professional, you know, uh, WNBA player, I totally could. I just need practice. <laughs> and my husband's like, no, that's mm. not going to be true for you. <laughs> but you know what? That optimism is exactly why you're really capable mom as you navigate all of those things and and all of the places where your expectations aren't exactly being met right yeah. that yeah. that optimism that glass half full the belief in our own ability to evolve and to incorporate new things new ideas i think that that is well it's resilience and it's a learned skill right so we say that a lot of times people are half full or half empty glass people. And that is in their nature. And to a degree that can be true, but resilience and the ability to navigate roadblocks is something you can learn. How have you started practicing that skill set? Those, those lessons that you've had to learn in the last, I don't know, decade. Hmm. I think that I have turned it into, wait, I am learning here. I am growing and this is part of my progress instead of like, what is happening to me? Why is this happening to me? I can't handle it. I am not equipped for this. And mm. if I'm not equipped on day one, I think I'm like, I'm thinking of some of the things that we go through as a family <laughs> that are, that are difficult and not, um, typical for every family. I think it's, um, I'm not even sure if I'm equipped today, but I am more equipped than day one. And I think that that's just what it has had to be. It has had to be an understanding of um, I'm learning and growing in this life that I thought was this life that I didn't exactly plan to go this way. Yeah. So what kind of expectations are we talking about? It's really hard for parents when they get some kind of I think I expected my kids to be exactly like me. And I think I expected them to think like me and to learn like me. And, um, they don't, <laughs> and that, and that is really, really hard. And, um, two of my kids have special needs, just differing special needs and it creates, a hard world that we live in where we're, we have to be learning all the time and, and adjusting. And one of them is, you know, as easy as like my, my favorite food used to be peanut butter. And my son has a very severe allergy to peanuts. So we don't eat peanut butter anymore. <laughs> like we can't. And the other one, um, it really involves behavior and it includes things like, I don't know if my kid's going to be safe today. And so it's just a like state of fight or flight that I did not expect that my life was going to have to be in. Yeah. That constant tension of what if and bargaining with your faith and your understanding of the world and your ideals and trying to 
find a semblance of peace and trust and confidence in your kids' ability to navigate and the world around them to be a gentle place while yeah. they while they experience whatever challenges, that's exhausting. Well, it's exhausting. And I think a lot of parents who um, kind of go through what we've gone through have this moment where they grieve the life they thought their kid was going to have. Yep. And I'm honestly, I think even if you have um, neurotypical kids and you've decided before they were ever bored, they were going to grow up and be a lawyer or a doctor. I think it's, I think you might also grieve those plans you had for your kid when, totally. you know, they become a teenager and they're, they're dabbling in drugs or whatever, whatever it is. I mean, honestly, it might even be a religious thing where your child leaves the, the, religion that you taught them, whatever it is, I think there is this, this grieving for what you thought your kids' lives would be. And for me, like, like that idea of I am in total control of whatever. And if I want to join the WNBA, I'm gonna, um, when you start putting other people in the mix, <laughs> like children, mm -hmm. you have, you, you have to let go of so much because, um, they're not you. Like they might be an extension of you, but they're, they are their own person and they get to grow up and make choices. And some of them you'll agree with, and some of them you're not going to, and some of, they don't think like you. And I think it has been a huge growing experience for me and, and maybe some grieving too, in understanding that they're their whole person and I cannot, you know, yeah. control I don't have a remote control to make them do the thing that I wanted to, them to do. <laughs> Although that would be easier. It would be a little easier. And then the batteries would go dead and they'd be stuck on hyper and you'd be panicking, trying to look for new ones. <laughs> I'm thinking about like, as you're saying this, I'm just thinking about like generationally, maybe, maybe that's a thing, right? We're both like millennial. I'm, I think I'm a cusper. Elder millennials. Yeah. I think, right. Whatever that Gen X the forgotten generation, not quite millennial, not quite Gen X. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm thinking about like how common this is. I think every parent probably goes through that experience of, I have a vision for what my children will be. And when you said they're going to be small versions of me, I was like, Ooh, that is relatable and offensive and heavy and, and sad to think about, cause I've experienced those same things. I've had, we have one daughter and in so many ways, she's a lot like I am. And those are the moments that I'm like, girl, that's not a helpful trait. Don't do it. <laughs> that one don't stick with it. The other day, Danielle, we were driving and I did not feel good. I'd been getting over being sick and there was a car driving like probably 14 miles an hour under the speed limit. And I was trying to get us home and she wasn't feeling well in the backseat either. And I said, Oh, just move your ass lady. And my child of course goes, mom, that's hilarious. Move your ass lady. And I just thought <laughs> swearing doesn't bother me, but man, it cracked me up. Cause I was like, I had this moment of reckoning like, okay, in the eighties, if I had done that, what would the response have been? Is this the child I want to raise? Is this the child society can handle? Is this a child that can navigate being yelled at at school if that slips out? Because my yeah. response is, hey, girl, I can't protect you at school if you run your mouth like that. Yeah. I really can't. And the expectation of, well, look, you wanted a mini me. Oh, it's such a mirror back at times to realize like, no, maybe I don't. Maybe I actually right. want a container for this child to explore and flourish in ways that I didn't without shaming 
who I am now. Yeah. Yeah. All of that to say the neurotypical conversation to me is so interesting um, because I think all of us are neurodivergent in a lot of ways, obviously Mm -hmm. stories that make it very evident that no, a lot of us cope really well. The more research that you do, the more you're like, oh, the, some people just have so much helps in their day that allow them to deal with what would have been, you know, harder for them to deal with. And, and as time has gone on, our nervous systems are out of whack, which makes us feel more neurodivergent. And yeah, I do think our, all of us had this, um, experience during the pandemic where we weren't getting the nervous system input that we needed. And so a lot of us now are like watching on Instagram or whatever. And we're like, Oh my goodness, I do have ADHD, but really it's just that I think this is like my own little theory. Really. I think it's that we just need to normalize our, our um, nervous systems. Again, we're just a little bit out of whack, but that was a very horrible experience. Oh, it was. And understandably that we're all completely grieving who we were Mm -hmm. and what we had access to. Even just the other day, I was thinking, man, my closest friendships have become online friendships. Like, and we talk offline and we get together in person, but we're all very far apart. And that alone can be so jarring. Yeah. Well, I mean, everything changed. And, and I think there's been a grieving for me with what was supposed to happen during that time. I was just at the graduations for the class of 2023 and those kids missed the the middle, the whole middle chunk of their four-year experience yeah. um, because of the pandemic or had it impacted from the pandemic. And, you know, I'm like, my kid missed the whole middle chunk of his elementary school experience. My kid missed the kindergarten year. My baby missed the time that was going to be just me and her. And I, ha- I think I spend a lot of time I'm grieving that. But again, I think that goes back to expectations is I had an expectation for how life was going to go. And then the pandemic came in and just mixed it all up and totally changed it. And we were like, oh my goodness, now my kid's not going to get their, you know, wildlife images field trip that every second grader gets, (laughs) you know, like, what is that? That's just like a a fake expectation that we've made up at my particular school (laughs) for what second grade, you know? And so, um, that I think that has been really actually pretty hard to kind of grapple with. How do you help your children navigate those expectations? Because they have them too, from classmates, from pictures, older siblings, especially. What are you doing that is effective or not effective? I don't even care if none of it has worked. I would just love to hear, like, how are you tackling that approach to parenting now that you have kids who are experiencing grief and not necessarily having the words for it. Mm, I think it's hard. And I think what I've recently learned, I'm kind of like, I mean, I have a podcast where I, I talk and talk and talk and talk. So it's obvious that I'm kind of the person that is just going to like, Hey guys, everybody hop on. It's time for a lecture. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think what I have learned within probably the last year is that when I turn it back to them and let them be reflective and let them kind of explore how they're feeling and where they want to move from there. That's um, I think that has been the most powerful resource for them because I don't, especially I'm in like the tween years now. And so I'm, (laughs) I'm definitely having to let him become his own person. And it also (laughs) helps him grow some resilience where I'm not popping in and solving every single problem that he's ever had. I'm, like posing questions and asking what he thinks about it and 
where does he want this to go? And when I open that up to him, that his opinion is valid and his feelings are valid and his grief is valid. Uh, it just gives him the opportunity to find a way forward. I think that that is one of the most gentle approaches you can take, especially in the context of maybe the small community where we live, but even the larger understanding of parenting post-pandemic, because we are, I don't even really truly know if you can say we are post-pandemic when people are still mm -hmm. yelling about things pandemic related. Uh, but I find it to be so important because what I have witnessed on my end, my daughter was the same. She was pulled out mid kindergarten. And so this year has been one of her hardest years yet. The school kept saying, well, this is the class that was most affected because this was their foundation of school. And I think, okay, to a degree, I can understand that. But at the same time, I'm looking at my child and thinking, well, how are you well adjusted then? Because we had a messed up year of trying to do online school. And we learned we are not homeschool family <laughs> in mm -hmm. that season. And now she goes back and academically she's fairly solid. So why is she having such a hard time? And I thought, well, those questions that I've posed to her over the years, giving her the opportunity to recognize internally, you have answers and I'm going to mm -hmm. honor that no matter your size, because mm -hmm. your size and age are relative to you, which means you have the best perspective right now. But what I'm witnessing are parents who do not want to trust their children's intuition when it comes to schooling mm -hmm. because of expectations of what school should be. And the battles right now are, they're ferocious. So first I want to say, you mentioned parents not trusting their kids. And mm -hmm. I think that when we don't trust them, they don't trust themselves. Yeah. And this, like, I am a helicopter mom in every sense of the word. Like my, my baby, I became a mom and then he was whisked away to the NICU. And so my like baptism into parenthood was, um, everything is not okay. You need to fight for his life every single moment. Yeah. And then one year later he anaphylaxed after eating peanuts. And I'm like, Oh my goodness, he's not safe in this world. Um, <laughs> so it has been really like a learning of, of he's going to be safe and I need to like trust him and we, and I need to allow him to grow and to understand that he is trustable. Yeah. So I think that's really important that we need to value their opinions so that they know that they have good ideas and good thoughts. How have you witnessed families around you navigating the loss of expectations? Because it's one thing to equip our children to understand their own expectations. It's another to have adults, peers, neighbors spouting the opposite mm -hmm. or, or even dismantling that internal resilience that you've built in your kids. You know, I, this last year has been really difficult for me because I've been dealing with a lot of parents who expect that, um, the class should look a certain way and every student should look a certain way. And it has been very difficult because my student does not fit that mold and maybe, they have had the audacity to think that only kids in that mold should be in that class. And that has been <laughs> very, very hard. And, yeah. um, it's funny. Cause I was like, Oh, Mandy, let's talk about anger. And then <laughs> last night I was like, I'm so angry. <laughs> I can't talk about anger, but so much anger has come from this. And I think <clears throat> the anger has just been the easiest emotion to feel in my grief of what I thought my life was going to be. Yeah. Friendships, 
um, support, you know, like all of the things that I would expect from my kids, peers, parents to be able to offer, um, is not there and is missing. And it feels like this huge gap. And, um, I, instead of dealing with that in a nice, healthy way, it just is, I've just been jumping straight over to anger. So I don't even have to deal with the fact that I'm really, really hurt. And that I'm really, really sad. Um, although we've talked about it before, anger could be really healthy and like <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the thing that helps us move forward and action and, um, you know, but, but it has been a long year filled with grief. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I can relate to that. And I hate that I can relate to it because my kiddo had a similar type of year, um, not necessarily with other parents, but with peers mm-hmm. and anger is a tool. You're absolutely right. It's, it's easy to access because it's a protector that's right there saying, don't worry, girl, you can stay here as long as you need to. But the problem is because it's so comfortable and because it's so safe, because it's a, it's a fence, right? It's a barricade mm-hmm. that says, nope, security. And if I bark loud enough, people will back off. Um, they don't have to see how much they've caused harm to me, to my child, to my expectation. Plus you don't have to trust that they will be able to hold space for your anger or for you to have humanity that deserves as much compassion and security and safety in the classroom as their child does. Right. I had students once upon a time that, uh, when I was summer camp, director and after school program director that were throwing chairs. I mean, third grade kids picking chairs up and pitching them across the library. And that was the day it was prior to that, maybe like two weeks prior that I had said, Hey, I need some training on like nonviolent restraint. I have a kid that's a risk, but my response was I need some training versus I need this kid out. Mm-hmm. And the day that the chair flew across the, li- the library, I had to restrain this eight-year-old boy And we were both dripping in sweat because I had to hold him safely until he could calm himself or someone else could get help. Right. So I sent, of course, go get this person, go get the phone. Um, And I'm just talking this boy down off this ledge because I'm realizing this child is at risk everywhere they go. This is a violent response to I'm at risk. That's all our kids are going through, not having the skills to cope the way everyone else does. This is the best thing he knows how to do. I'm going to meet him where he's at. And that doesn't mean throwing a chair in response. This is not WWE. This is how do we engage the people around us in a way that invites a decrease in that nervous system activation to a place where they can get past anger and say, Hey buddy, this is protecting you. What's underneath. Mm -hmm. You're safe to be sad. You're safe Mm -hmm. to be hurt by that friend who said that thing. You're safe to feel like you belong when everyone around you is saying you don't belong, well, you actually belong. They are the ones trying to force you into a shape that you don't fit into. How, like the word you used, the audacity is so perfect because that expectation of the world is exactly what I want it to be is juvenile. Um, So many things I want to say. Okay. I think it's all just skill building, which is the same thing we're trying to do. We're trying to understand our emotions as we're feeling them. And then you put that in a tiny person and they're also doing the skill building and trying to, um, learn how to react to anger and disappointment and sadness and feeling alone or left out. And we know that's hard for us as adults. So we have to understand it's going to be hard for kids as well. It's interesting. Cause I 
have had like this just such a terrible year. And then I went to um, one of the kids' birthday parties and I was so not looking forward to this. You know, I put all my walls up and everything <laughs> and I go in and um, my son and another kid were playing and I go over to make sure they were all good and everyone was feeling good. And, and the mom of this kid came up to me and she's like, Hey, I got to tell you, my daughter loves your son. And I was like, she does. And she was like, yeah, she talks about him every single day. And she comes home and she'll say, Hey, my friend had a great day. He was so happy and everything went great. Or she'll come home and say, mom, I'm so worried about my friend. He had a hard day. And I just thought like, what the difference of it's goes back to like, what are we, what are we teaching our children in the expectation of what their day in life is supposed to look like? One kid is going to go and understand that all kids are different or all people are different Mm -hmm. and be able to have some kind of grace and compassion for that. And another kid's going to be like, I need this kid out. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) and, and I understand as a parent wanting to protect our kid from all the things, but I also think that the, the growth and who we want our kids to be and the resiliency that we want our kids to have is going to be in the understanding that we're not all the same. And when we get out of elementary school, we are still not going to be all the same. It's a matter of recognizing when you have a classroom environment or even a workplace environment that values growth versus obedience. And I'm going to position those two against each other for a couple of reasons, but primarily because I think when you have a leader, whether it's a boss, a teacher, even a parent demanding obedience, what you experience is a dampening of the person you are asking to fall in line. Mm-hmm. There is a quieting of that spirit. And in okay. some contexts, okay, fine. In the military, yes, you need obedience because you can't have people going hog wild, running out and blowing up the whatever stri- strategy people. But the reality is that person is so dynamic. And if what you are looking for is a cookie cutter version of them that can keep things on schedule for you, that can accomplish what your goals are, but maybe they don't buy into your goal because you haven't fully explained the vision or helped them understand, then you have a classroom or a workplace setting that is so full of dismissal of that person's individuality that they just, they start to sink away. There was one thing your son's friend reminds me of is that empathy that I tried to teach my kiddo in the beginning. She's always been picked on for being little. Um, and I mean, if anybody knows anything about me, I'm the person that shows up and said, who's the kid. I don't need the parent. Let me correct the kid. Let me be the one with the physical nonviolent restraint. Enneagram eight. (laughs) Yeah. The Enneagram eight in me shows up and says like, hi, um, your parents are clearly failing you and your teacher's clearly (laughs) failing you because you're picking on my child and there's no reason she's great. She's actually really fun. If you'd get to know her. I'm the oldest of five and I'm super, it's funny because we're talking about obedience like that was me when I was a kid I had never stepped out of line like I was the perfect kid in the school so there's yeah. my expectations again yeah. and to have to have to navigate this world that I have no understanding of <laughs> at yeah. all is yeah. has been really difficult um but I have four younger siblings and when something would happen to them I like someone said something or anything I would be right up there talking to the kid <laughs> no matter <laughs> and, like don't don't talk to my kid, my brother like that ever again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I remember what it was. Yeah. The expectation of like, 
telling my child, Hey, if you have a kid in class, that's being unkind, there's a chance they didn't have breakfast this morning. Mm -hmm. Do you have a kid that's acting out in class or like looking for attention? Do you know who does that? The kids that truly don't get paid attention to. Do you know who has a hard time being kind? The people who are being taught that kindness doesn't matter. So when you are being picked on, I want you to remember empathy. I want you to defend yourself all day long mm -hmm. if you need to, but at the same time, water off a duck's back. Can you let that slide? Can you develop some empathy or put their behavior back in the context of who they are and where they are? And she came home from school. School just ended for us. She came home the other day and she, she's the kid that will report on her classmates as well. She'll say like, <laughs> like, how'd it go? And she's like, oh, so-and-so had a really hard day. They got written up. And then this kid was really unhappy today. And she won't tell me when they're doing well. She'll tell me when they're in crisis. And what that tells me is that her security depends on the classroom being safe and mm -hmm. reliable, mm -hmm. not even meeting her expectations, just a place that feels stable. Mm -hmm. And that always comes back to the expectations put on by the teacher. And so that anger piece, I want to hit on that because the grief that we can talk about is something most people can't get to. Anger is keeping them very safe. If you're an uh, internal family systems person and you're looking at the parts, that protector is in a lot of ways working very well with all the managers in us that are saying, don't worry, you don't have to address that because this part of you is over here taking care of all the pieces that make it, that make it workable instead of just saying like, oh, that part of you is actually valid and deserves to be here. Right. And so my question is like, how do you experience and help your kids even process that grief of expectations not being quite right. I think we have to allow the time for the grief and even the time for the anger. Um, like one of the things we work on is it is okay to be angry. It's not okay to be mean kind of thing. Yes. But I, I, I want my kids to know, and I even want me to know, and I want to remind myself that it's okay. However much time it takes, Yeah. you know, there doesn't have to be a timeline. Uh, and that's what I'm always looking for. Cause it's so easy. Um, like a take five days to be very mad. <laughs> B celebrate <laughs> my madness. They <laughs> say something mean, <laughs> just kidding. That's not part of the plan. <laughs> I don't know. That's kind of an effective plan. It feels very, I think we've talked about like the one liner stinging remark, you know, Yeah. but, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it just has to be that the, that the process can unfold and yeah. that it can be hard and it can be terrible. And, um, and I've, I've learned this with my son when my son did not test out of his peanut allergy, I cried in the allergist office and the allergist was like, this is like really easy for you to deal with. It's going to be okay. This is not and then he named a whole bunch of other things. And so I was like, okay, it's going to be okay. This is not all the things. And so that was what I took to my son. I was like, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. <laughs> but in my heart, I was like, this is the word. This is so hard. This is mm. so hard. And then I, then I put this message from my doctor who I love on him too. <laughs> and recently within the last several years, I've been like, this is hard. Yeah. I am really sorry that you have to live with this. Like yeah. you can feel whatever pain you have to feel around this, because it is hard. It's challenging to watch all your friends eat something that you can't eat or go sit at a different table because everybody's eating peanut butter. Like that is all challenging. And that is like, he can have all the grief that he needs to have around that because that feels lonely. 
and it feels scary. And he, he just told me the other day, he never, he's never sure if he's going to make it through the day or not. Can you imagine like living Mm -hmm. with that? I know what it's like to live with that fear as him, as my son, but to have to feel that way every day. Um, so I just had, I have moved into a space of, I do not know it all. And I'm going to acknowledge all of the things that you're feeling around what you're dealing with. That awareness and that internalized lesson of, I do not know it all is what helps us avoid the minimizing statements. Like your doctor used trying to encourage you. This isn't scary. This is easy. You can do it, buddy. Right. I love what you're going for here, but I hate everything about your approach. And if you don't shut your mouth, (laughs) I'm going to repeat that nonsense to my child and cause us both long lasting cognitive dissonance where we just forget it's okay to not be okay. And that's a really, I think that that's such a powerful thing because as parents, we are reparenting ourselves. It doesn't matter how great our parents were. We are learning new things these days that we say, oh, I wish I knew that when, or I wish my parents knew that. Or generationally, the world is a very different place than it was in the eighties and nineties. And so we have to recognize that as you are, as we are practicing new things with our children, we are trying to internalize them too. And I think that that's that alone activates a wrestling with expectations of, of what this life could have been and what we'd be as a parent. Well, and then I, I feel like I can even get into this little spiral where I'm like, I, you know, I should have known better. I've been a parent now for 11 years and I'll, I actually just posted to Facebook. I wish I could start parenting over with all that I know now (laughs) and try again. Um, but, and I think there's a lot, I've had a lot of people reach out to me on my podcast, you know, they're, they have grown children and they're like, I just wish I could do it all over again with all the information we have now, but all we can do is our best. And I think that we can give ourselves that time to, you know, feel, feel how we feel about it, feel sad and, and whatever, but now is today, today is now, and this is all that we have to work with moving forward. So. I don't know that that has been a hard, hard space to live into is maybe grieving what could have been if I would have known more. (laughs) Well, and I even want to push back on that just because I feel like that idea of starting over as parents that exists. It's, it's humility. It's not Mm. believing that we can have gone back and created great kids. We have great kids. It's not Mm. believing that we could have under mind our own bad attitudes at the time and had perfect attitudes and had, you know, (laughs) kindness always out of our, no move your ass comments while driving, no (laughs) reckoning with actually snapping at our kids and having to apologize for the anger outburst. No, um, all of those behaviors that we think, Oh, I, I'm a different parent with each child you get, right. You're a different Mm -hmm. parent. So my sister and I talk about this occasionally too. Like we had different moms, even though we have the same mother. We have different dads, even though we have the same dad, we have different parents because we got them at different seasons in their lives. And so we have different relationships to them, but humility is what allows us to have conversations with those kids in a way that says, Whoa, two years ago, do you know the context is again, it's putting our, our stories back into the context of our existence and our humanity and the grief that we're carrying and the joys that we're experiencing and all of the in-between that says I was in a really bad season. And I don't think I was available to you in the way that I wanted to be. And I love you. And I know that that affected us. And so 
I would love to work back toward that. Knowing our kids don't have the emotional intelligence to say, mom, thank you. I see you. I love you. I can hold space for you. And I can <laughs> exist within this framework really well while we both figure out where we're going. Right. Okay. Ideal relationship <laughs> response. But our kids, they can see us, right? They can see us and say, thanks mom. It's okay. And we then get the chance to say like, it's, it wasn't okay but I appreciate your compassion and your willingness to keep going. Your it's okay is forgiveness. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Where do we go from here? What would you have like that humble question of what would you have liked? If you could have had a different response from me, what would that response have been? Help me guide where we're going. And I think that when we're used to, I don't know if this is everyone, but if we're used to micromanaging environments, like, like the classroom or like, I, I still get over as a tangent, I still can't get over how kids can handle classrooms all day long. If I was micromanaged that constantly by a, an adult or by a boss, I would come unhinged too. And I can handle the obedience game. I can handle the respond to the bells, right? I think we have to invite our kids into emotional intelligence by demonstrating it in front of them. And that mm -hmm. a big part of that is humility and recognizing there are emotions that we don't name, that we don't know how to access that are available to us with so much wisdom, mm -hmm. but it's embarrassing to tell your kid I messed up and I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, um, the power in that though. And I love this idea of you can start over with humility. That's so good. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've had, we've had those conversations and I do think that that helps them. It teaches them that they, this is accessible to them too. Right. This thoughtful approach to humility, this thoughtful approach to where do I want to go from now saying sorry and growing and learning. And yeah, I think that's really, really powerful for your, for your kids as well. Yeah. I think it's also interesting thinking about after you empower children to do these things, then you have to reckon with these little humans who are practicing emotional intelligence and practicing independence right back at you. Because yeah. there will be moments when I'm sure you've experienced this. My child will say something like, um, mom, I did not appreciate that. And I need to, you to understand you didn't tell me to do the thing you asked if I wanted to. And my answer is no. And then I have to be like, <laughs> Cool. Okay. Yeah. Wait, You're right. I, I, um, my son, I no how old is he? My oldest son, <laughs> I can't remember what it was, but I'm like, get in the car, bud, get in the car, bud, get in the car. And he's like, mom, is that how we talk to children? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you know what? You're right. It's not. <laughs> get in the car. <laughs> it's not how we talk to children is ignoring your person three times how we respect our person. Okay, there we go. So, um, <laughs> we, we were talking about feeling safe and I, I think that, so we talk a lot about fight or flight in my, in my home, because my son is one of my kids is very scientific and he's the one that is constantly in fight or flight and does not feel safe. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that helps him feel safe is anger. Like we've talked about, it's the, he's got, he doesn't have control, but he, um, he goes to that and it's because he feels like he's under attack all day long, whether it's like mm -hmm. from the sounds of the lights or like all the colors or all the expectations or find your pencil or do this assignment. It's just this constant feeling of fight or flight. Most of us can manage that. Yeah. But I think, um, I think that 
I've felt in that same space of fight or flight within the last year. And it has been this, we, we created this um, little thing for his hand, like put your hand on and say, like, start to understand, like I am safe. So the first thing I think that has been really important for him and for me is this understanding of no matter how angry you feel, no matter what you're feeling in your class is take a step back and understand that you are safe. Like your body is, you are safe in your body. You can trust your body. You can, you can trust yourself. And then, um, and then once you've done that move forward with like, okay, what, what am I feeling here? Mm -hmm. I'm feeling super angry. I'm feeling super angry because I thought that person wasn't going to betray me. You know yeah. what I mean? You know what I mean? And just Valid reasons. be able to unravel the whole thing um, by understanding that your, your brain is acting in a way to keep you safe. And you've got to take the minute to understand first, Hey brain that, you know, started centuries ago or whenever it was <laughs> um, brain, you're safe. When you say that, I think, yes, creating safety in the body is the most primary and guttural way to start that level of awareness of where we are and being able to ground in the moment. But there are so many people who don't like on a subconscious level, don't have safety in their bodies for, for any number of reasons. Yeah. And well, like my, my son with the peanut allergy, if he's yeah. sitting at school with peanuts all around, he's not physically safe. Right. So I wonder what we can do to create, um, the feeling of safety, because when you are in a constant state of fight or flight yeah, and you're making these decisions from that part of your brain, they're not yeah. going to be the decisions that you're going to be proud of, you know, right. down the road. Well, and they're not decisions that you can, um, build. Are upon. they even decisions? Are they just reflex? You know, it's just your yeah. reflex. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's your certain nervous system saying like, don't worry, we've got this. We can, you know, path of least resistance. Let's get to a place where it feels more controllable. And that window of tolerance is something we talk about a lot on this show too, just about how we widen our window of tolerance so that we're not in that hypo or hypervigilant state where we respond. So, um, in such a volcanic or iceberg way, right. That mm -hmm. freeze slow down and like shut down on everything and go away from places or the explosion that looks like anger that really is just fear <laughs> and, a, mm -hmm. and a number of other things, but yeah, our man, those little guys, they need that opportunity. And without parents like us who are doing really uncomfortable, awkward, and for the two of us publicly on the, <laughs> on the airwaves kind of work, they're not going to make it through. They're going to end up just like us really, which when we are honest, expectation of wanting our kids to be just like us means we want them to be okay. Well, nervous about <laughs> social right. settings. If I'm looking at my life and I'm like, Oh, super aggressive when challenged. Oh, that's not a characteristic you need, babe. <laughs> sure. It has served me well, but only in the context that I've shown up in, you don't need that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What is, what is the one thing that you would say to the parent who's listening? Who's like, Oh damn, this is me. I have a ton of expectations that I didn't realize that I'm working through or that I've been affected by that are not going my way. And now I have to reckon with grief while continuing to parent and trying to parent a different way. What's the first thing you would direct them to for some progress of their own, but some self-compassion on the yeah. way? I mean, that's, that's just it is it's okay. Like the first thing, like when you're like alone and like 
crying about the things you thought were going to be. And you're like trying to figure out how you ended up in the space. Cause it isn't the space you thought you'd be is it's okay. Like number one, it's okay. Like it's okay to feel that way. It is okay to feel like the world is falling down. Um, and also you're not the only one who's ever felt it. And there's someone who is out there and maybe you don't know them yet, but they are going through something similar. And I think, um, I think it, it's interesting because when we're in it, it just feels so unique to us. Like no one's ever felt this and no one has felt this alone and this confused and this out of whack with our expectations. But in reality, it's just such a human experience and to understand that it's such a human experience and you're not doing anything wrong. I think that's where I want to start. Do I even have any advice to move after that is I just want you to know it's okay. I think, and that you're totally human and you're doing it right. And this is, it's, it's okay. You're okay. You're totally human and you're doing it right. I think yeah. that is the most loving and happy and perfect place to, to wrap this. Well, I, you know, I, I hope it helps. Cause I, I mean, I, I sit there and I wonder, and I think, and I, and I talk to so many other people, you know, whether it's the marriage that wasn't what you thought it was going to be or, yeah or the home or whatever, the job, all the things. I think it's just most important that we have compassion and we know we're human and we're doing okay. Yeah. Unmet expectations are a huge source. So oh, thank you for being here. Friends, you need to go find happiness in progress with Daniel Craig. And I don't know if you need some like familiarity, you could start around like 190, uh, episode <laughs> 190 or so, if you'd like, because it's a good one. And it's a great one. It's a great one. You can hear more about anger and grief. The links for her podcast and her Patreon are in the show notes and go find her on Instagram. Danielle, you're a gem and it's been such a joy to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to episode 91 of Restorative Grief. Danielle is obviously a growth mindset human, but that doesn't mean she's perfect nor that she sees the growth opportunity in every scenario. Sorry, Danielle. <laughs> Sometimes we find them after the fact when we approach again, maybe a little more slowly, but certainly with some humility. The understanding that we are in progress and that it's not only okay, but expected to be a process is the gift of mercy we all need more of in our daily lives and our grief experiences. If this is the first time you've ever listened to the show, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for making space to be here. Thank you again to all my patrons and supporters. This show is obviously something I love to do, but it's also a lot easier when I know that I'm supported and that the people that are hearing this can know that they're supported as well. If you're interested in learning more about restorative grief, the model, the book, the project, the coaching, all of the things, you can check out anything about it at mandykpart.com. Uh, and specifically, if you're interested in one-on-one -on -one coaching, slots are open now at mandykpart.com slash coaching. If you haven't done this yet, be sure to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review people, a big shiny one for me. They make me so happy and share this episode with a friend. I think we could all use the reminder to approach ourselves with compassion and curiosity about what might be going on in the larger context of our lives. And one last thing, as always, please remember the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.